0: Could it be that Russia's war against Ukraine is driven by their nostalgia? And how often does nostalgia play a role in other wars? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. So much of human endeavor has been all about killing more people more quickly. Nations have spent more on the military budget almost to the exclusion of every other investment which could actually bring better lives to a nation's inhabitants. Why? Think of all the past wars in the past 200 years. There are many official justifications for those wars. In World War II, Japan was open about their intent to control the Pacific. In the Spanish-American War, the U.S. expanded its empire. World War I was, of course, a family fight between ruling aristocracies and basically no one won. America's war in Vietnam was all about stopping the spread of communism. Now we see a rather shocking display of mass murder of the civilians of Ukraine. Aside from the horror, what stands out about Russia's invasion is nostalgia. Nostalgia? Did I say nostalgia? Yes, more often than we would expect, wars are indeed launched from a place of nostalgia. We, at all times, uh, we occasionally do feel nostalgic for a time past, so it's believed things were better back then. Life was simpler, and the challenges of today, of course, make us long for the good old days. The order of how it used to be was so familiar. Can't we just bring that back? When the word nostalgia first came into common use, it was understood to be a medical condition. Doctors inspecting it looked into the troublesome condition and saw that it was not based on reality, but some idealized past memory made brighter and more beautiful through the lens of time. Fantasy of better days. In the American Civil War and World War I in particular, nostalgia was seen as unhealthy. The war was going on and was recognized to be the reality. Of course, individuals could miss their home and feel nostalgic, but it was isolated to those individuals, or so it was thought. But as we'll discuss today, individual nations are also greatly affected by nostalgia, and that can and does lead to terrible outcomes with the loss of massive numbers of lives, losses without any real gains. So how does nostalgia become policy? How does nostalgia fit with nationalism and imperialism? Well, our guest today, Dr. Lawrence Whitner, knows some answers to that, and we're going to look at that. It's very interesting and useful. Dr. Lawrence Whitner brings a unique and valuable insight into the surprising connection between nostalgia and a nation's belief that they have a right to make war. His article on the History News Network is titled The Dangerous Trend of Imperial Nostalgia. It's Not Just Russia. Lawrence Whitner is professor of history emeritus at SUNY Albany and the author of Confronting the Bomb. Lawrence, Larry, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive.
1: Uh, Thank you, Bert. I'm delighted to be here today.
0: What does the war in Ukraine have to do with human, uh, the human emotion, nostalgia. We'll look into that. Actually, perhaps it's all about a collective longing for past glory, real or more likely imagined. The greatness of the days of the Tsar and the might of the Soviet Union. That's what's at play in Ukraine. But as Whitner notes, it's not just Russia. Well, again, thanks for being with us, uh, Larry. You write, although great empires rank among the most powerful engines of world history. They are also among the most dangerous, especially as they brood over their decline. Wow, there's been a lot of empires and declines through the many, many centuries. So what is this nostalgia in Russia today that is driving their war on Ukraine?
1: Well, um, I think we have to go back uh, centuries Uh, Russia uh, began as a a, a small uh, territory, um, uh, so-called Great Russia, uh, and it expanded uh, dramatically over the centuries. Uh, uh, Tsarist Russia uh, eventually uh, became the largest nation on on Earth, and it was composed of a a, a vast uh, mixture of uh, subject peoples who were, who were under uh, the, the control of the great Russians, of this uh, uh, smaller uh, principality. Uh, and um, uh, they were o- often uh, dissatisfied, that is, the uh, subject peoples were uh, dissatisfied with this uh, state of affairs. Uh, and they revolted at, at, at times. At times, other nations managed to uh, pry off uh, part of the czarist uh, imperium. But uh, nonetheless, um, uh, Russia w- was the largest nation in the world up to the time of the uh, First World War, um, when the the uh, Bolshevik uh, Revolution uh, broke that up and and uh, transformed um, what uh, Vladimir Lenin had called the uh, prison of nations into um, a, a a different uh, sort of uh, system. Um, um, uh, Lenin had uh, believed that um, uh, subject peoples uh, should be uh, freed from, from uh, imperial domination, uh, that uh, Russia uh, shouldn't operate this, this uh, prison system of, of uh, subject peoples. Uh, and he actually uh, freed various uh, nationality groups from uh, Russian control. But uh, for the most part, he uh, substituted a system uh, that would uh, provide for nationality rights. So in Ukraine, for example, there would be a, a, a Ukrainian uh, People's Republic, uh, and there would be other uh, republics, and these in turn would uh, get together and, and they form the uh, Soviet Union, a uh, union of these uh, separate uh, republics, and there would be nationality rights. Uh, however, under Stalin, uh... the the uh, nationally the, uh, the nationality rights were uh... gradually withdrawn and uh... uh things were uh, tightened up uh... and um, um, uh, the uh... soviet union uh... in fact not only um, uh, clamped down on different nationality groups including the uh, ukrainians who were who were uh, starved uh, during the nineteen thirties the early thirties when there, there was near uh genocide some yeah, sometimes we'll call it, call it uh, fully genocide but but they were actually uh, starved to death uh, yes. by their uh, moscow overlords and um, 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 in in nineteen thirty nine of course the nazi soviet pact was was signed, and this uh, freed up uh, stalin for actually Uh, gobbling up uh, additional places like uh, Latvia, uh, Lithuania, Estonia, that had been freed uh, by the Bolsheviks, um, as well as portions of of Poland. Uh, And then, of course, um, at the end of the Second World War, um, well, even uh, part of that time, of course, the the, uh, 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 Germans double-crossed there, uh... Russian allies, and they invaded the uh, Soviet Union, and the Russians fought back uh, alongside their newfound allies, the united states and and uh, Britain. and as victors in in the war, uh, took over large portions of of Eastern Europe. so the the Czarist Empire was really uh, succeeded by the Soviet Empire. Uh, and uh, once again, uh, the, uh, the Russians uh, controlled this this vast empire uh that during the cold war was of course uh, pitted uh, against the united States. so uh um, when um, the the uh, russians look at ukraine they say uh, uh why should you, you ukraine be independent how can it dare hook up uh with nato how how can it uh, hook up uh, with the european union uh the ukrainians are are, are a part uh, of Russia and and always have been, although that's not true. Right. But nonetheless, uh, they claim that as uh, they look back to the glorious past mm-hmm. of the empire and of the Soviet Union,
0: and and the damage that it's causing. Just believing in that, it it does appear that a major turning point in the longing for the old Soviet Union uh, came in 1991. I mean, it, it is. Amazing to me how the feeling in Russia now in 2022 is, as you say, that we want it back, even though they didn't really have it. But in 1991, Russian leaders, as you say, were suddenly adrift. The Soviet Empire, as you mentioned, had been geographically huge, the biggest country in the world. Um, So what happened in 1991 that befuddled them so much, and were there options that they didn't choose that might have been better?
1: Well, it's hard to say what would have been better, but uh, nonetheless, what happened was that uh, Gorbachev, um, as the the uh, president of the the uh, Soviet Union, right. um, uh, uh, at the time that that there were uh, pressures to uh, give up the the uh, Soviet empire uh he agreed that the uh, Ukrainians could have a a um, uh, a vote on on independence a referendum and this was uh, freely held uh, the Russians backed off on it mm. they let the uh, Ukrainians vote and uh the result was that um uh, n- uh 92% of uh, Ukrainians voted for independence so, uh, Gorbachev said uh, goodbye to them, and and uh, Ukraine was an independent nation uh, from that point on. Uh, Gorbachev didn't uh, want them to uh, to leave, but he recognized that uh, they didn't want to stay. Um, uh, so, uh, the the uh, Soviet Union had come to a, a turning point in 1991. They had let the the Estonians, the Latvians, the uh, Lithuanians go, uh, they let the, the uh, Ukrainians go, uh, and other groups uh, chose independence at, at that point. And uh, Russia could have uh, continued on, on those lines, could have, could have said, well, uh, these were groups that, that didn't want to be under uh, Russian hegemony or uh, united with uh, Russia any, anymore. So we'll accept the fact that we're no longer a great empire, uh we consider ourselves a great nation of course, but nonetheless, uh we can live and let live. Um but they they chose in in the end under uh Putin uh, not to do that.
0: And and between Gorbachev and Putin there was Yeltsin. How did how did he approach the breakup uh, as compared to well, Putin? Good.
1: Yeah, he, he accepted it. Uh, you know, again, there was a, a, a longing for the, for the glorious past, uh, when Russia was the greatest nation on the earth, um, when uh, people uh, trembled before the, the uh, Soviet Union or looked to the Soviet Union as a great leader uh, in world liberation. But nonetheless, uh, he, he basically uh, accepted this. And, in, in fact, in the uh, Buddhist, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Budapest, uh, memorandum of uh, 1994 um, when the uh, ukrainians got together uh, with the the uh, russians and the americans and agreed on a, a future a security arrangement for uh, ukraine when ukraine was uh, turning over its nuclear weapons uh, to russia which it did um, uh, the russians agreed in this uh, budapest memorandum of 1994 that it would uh, respect uh, Ukraine's uh, territorial sovereignty mm. and would not intervene mm. in Ukrainian affairs.
0: Well, that changed, that's for sure. My goodness. That's,
1: that's right. <laughs> uh, and gradually, there's been a a backsliding uh, on the uh, Budapest memorandum and an and in, increasing uh, demand under uh, Putin's yeah. uh, rule that uh, Ukraine... Uh, must never uh, turn away uh, from the Russians and can never do, do certain things. Uh, and therefore, when they do, uh, the Russians have the right to uh, take control of Ukraine once more.
0: Uh, they're finding out it's easier said than done, that's for that's sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking about the dangerous trend of imperial nostalgia. And it's not just Russia. Our guest is uh, the author of an article on that topic, uh, on history, uh, the History News Network, La- Professor Lawrence Whitner. And it's it's not just Russia, but Putin. Wow, interesting how wh- what he does but with things people do for political power—it never ceases to amaze me. You write that. As early as 2005, Putin told the Russian parliament that the collapse of the Soviet empire was, quote, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. He called it a genuine tragedy for the Russian people. Talk about the significance of this, please, and its context in 2005.
1: Well, um, as as, uh, Putin gradually has solidified his uh, political power and his uh, political control, uh, in Russia, in the the uh, post-Soviet period, um, he um, uh, began to uh, speak up for uh, traditional uh, Russian nationalism and to uh, look to the past for uh, Russian uh, glory. Uh, and um, as i mentioned, he he uh, idealized uh, Stalin. Uh, among others, uh, because he recognized that that Stalin hadn't hadn't let the uh, Ukrainians have their way in the the uh, Soviet Union, but had had clamped down on them, and uh, uh, he was going to to uh, restore uh, Russia's past uh, glory, or what he felt was Russia's past glory. Now he was also by, by the way under under uh, pressure from uh, uh, Russian nationalists that were very uh disappointed with um, uh, Russia's uh, reduced status in the uh, post-Soviet period and he he in a way headed them off or absorbed their uh, constituents yeah. uh, they liked what what uh, Putin started to say so uh Putin viewed this as not only uh, something uh, justified uh, by Russian history but also something that was uh, politically useful to him, uh-huh. uh, just as, as, of course, uh, Donald Trump views uh, talk about uh, uh, making America great again uh, as useful uh, politically for him. Um, and um, uh, you know, uh, more recently, uh, Putin has, has actually come out with uh, statements uh, which have been uh, published uh, and uh, publicized by by his regime, uh, in which he he, he said that uh, Ukraine was never an independent nation. It it was always uh, Russian. It's Russian land. And, and of course, Russia has the right to uh, control it. Um, So, um, uh, therefore, um, when uh, Ukraine uh, talked about um, uh, joining the uh, European Union or making some uh, sort of deal with them, Um, back almost a decade ago, Hmm. uh, it it should not have been allowed to do this. Uh, Their natural home uh, was Russia. Uh, The Russians and the Ukrainians were uh, brothers and and sisters, uh, of course, to be dominated uh, by the Russian side of the relationship. And therefore, uh, Ukraine really uh, lacked uh, the right of being an independent nation.
0: Well, it it sure is interesting when the world is looked at through uh, nostalgia-colored glasses. (laughs) It's just just not real. So the Russian military, I have to believe, has some significant political power, as the military in pretty much every nation does. What were some of the first signs of the implementation of imperial nostalgia by the Russian military?
1: Well, uh, of course, the military uh, missed the fact that that they had been reduced in size uh, thanks to the uh, breakup of the old Soviet Union, uh, that Russia had much less money. It was go- undergoing economic uh, crises, and the, the uh, regime could, could uh, hardly maintain the old uh, Soviet military power. So uh, generals found they were being uh, reduced or, or uh, retired. Uh, and, uh, you know, the armed forces didn't get all the military gadgets they wanted. There were arms control and disarmament treaties signed with the United States, in which uh, both sides reduced their, their numbers of uh, nuclear weapons, uh, and, and the military didn't like this, of, right. of, of course. Uh, and when uh, Putin started to, to use them once more, uh, for uh, military uh, purposes rather than just uh, sit at home and uh, practice waging war, um, they were uh, pleased by this. And, and, and so, for example, they were used to move into the, the independent nation of Georgia, uh-huh. one of these uh, subject groups that had been freed when the uh, Soviet Union uh, collapsed. Uh, they were used uh, to win the, the uh, civil war in uh, Syria. Uh, for the Assad regime. Uh, Russia moved in with a, um, a massive bombing campaign to, to uh, destroy the uh, rebellion against Assad's rule uh, and help to win the war for Assad. Um, they, they were used later, 2014, uh, to move into uh, Crimea uh, and to uh, simply annex it for uh, Russian territory. Uh, Crimea was, was of course, part of uh, Ukraine, but it it was just taken back uh, by Russia Mm -hmm. uh, through its military power. And they were also used to instigate a uh, separatist revolt in the uh, Donbass region, the easternmost uh, sliver of uh, Ukraine, Um, and this uh, separatist revolt. I mean, there were people of uh, Russian background easternmost region but they would they would certainly have have not been capable of, of staging a, a full-scale military revolt with uh, uh anti-aircraft guns and tanks and and uh, and uh, missiles and so on uh, without the uh, russian military moving in and uh, and arming them and actually fighting for them so the the uh, revolt there that has has gone on ever since that time right up to the present um, was backed by the Russian military. Uh, so, yes, uh, the military was now uh, fulfilling what it viewed as its function uh, once more, and, and that was a winning war uh, for the uh, great Russia of the
0: past. Glory restored. Ah, must feel right. great. <laughs> but as your article is titled, The Dangerous Trend of Imperial Nostalgia, it's not just Russia as we look in the past to see the role of nostalgia in, in various different wars that have taken millions of lives. Back, back in the First World War, regular listeners knew I'd bring that up, uh, one of the imperial belligerents was formerly Great Britain. And I, I mean that quite clearly. The greatness was based upon the sun never setting on the British Empire. Well, it, well, it did set. It did, in fact, set. And and you write that disconsolate Russian officials have their counterparts in Britain. So fast forward to the 21st century, and we have the ever tousled Prime Minister Boris Johnson, a formerly Great Britain, whom you quote from 2002. And this is interesting to me. The problem is not that we were once in charge, but that we are not in charge anymore, end of quote. What are some of the post-World War Two examples of of British example of uh, British imperialism being led by nostalgia.
1: Yes. Well, um, uh, Britain, of course, had had been the the uh, great overseas uh, colonizer of the um, the nineteenth uh, and twentieth uh, centuries. It uh, it ruled uh, perhaps one fourth of the globe. Uh, so when when the Britons sang uh, "Rule Britannia." Uh, it, it really did rule uh, the yes, world, yes. Uh, and um, uh, of course, other imperial powers didn't like this, and they were at at, at odds with Britain, such as as uh, Germany. But in the uh, post-war period, uh, Britain uh, faced the fact that that it had um, uh, come down in economic power. It, it it was devastated by the Second World War. Uh, much uh, reduced in, in, in terms of the uh, relative size of its armed forces at, as compared to the United States and to the Soviet Union. So uh, Britain simply didn't have the, the economic and military power to uh, hold on to its uh, colonies that were busy uh, rebelling mm-hmm. uh, against British uh, colonial rule. It was a good time after all to uh, free themselves. Britain was on its its uh, imperial last legs, it seemed, here was the chance to break loose. Uh, and many of them did. Um, but uh, Britain uh, sought to hold on to what it could. So in, in Africa, for example, in uh, Kenya, uh, the uh, British waged a, a, a brutal war uh, against the Mau Mau, who were, who were uh, uh, seeking independence through a, a, a revolution. Uh, and uh, British... Mass murder of the uh, of a uh, good good portion of the population uh, took took place during the 1950s. One of the most uh, brutal anti-colonial um, uh, military occupations uh, in world history. Um, or uh, better known is the uh, Suez invasion yes. in 1956. Um, the the uh, British along with their uh imperial allies the the french uh as long um, i'm sorry as well as the uh israelis um, who were all very uh, distressed with the uh government of of uh nasser in in egypt uh who was um, uh leading in the, the third world and and calling mm-hmm. for third world independence and even rebellion against imperial rule um, uh, Nasser, who had seized the uh, Suez Canal from its its uh, British uh, control of the past, um, Suez the lifeline to India and to to asia and and so on uh, for many years for the the uh, british empire well the the uh, British were just horrified by this, and so they got together with these other powers as I uh, mentioned. And they, they just invaded uh, Suez and, and seized the uh, Suez Canal. Uh, they were not going to allow uh, the, the, these upstart uh, e- Egyptians to, to uh, take control of Egyptian territory. So, um, but in this case, uh, imperialism didn't work, this, uh, uh, this vain attempt to hold on to imperial power. And the United States turned against them. And the uh, Soviet Union turned against them, and so the uh, British um, uh, humiliated had to withdraw from uh, Suez um, so they were they were very upset by this, but ultimately were forced to settle for a uh, junior partnership with the United States that is they could they could still do something as a major power, but they recognized they needed the United States.
0: It, it is so interesting to me, the uh, nostalgia mixed with humiliation and the fear of humiliation, the power of that fear. And Britain has, let's face it, been humiliated lots of times huh, because of their, <laughs> their own policy. Uh, and it, it, the people that, that you know, there, there's a lot of deaths involved here. And it's just the role of nostalgia in making these policies just we, we need to understand that and hopefully do something about it. I don't know. There, another one of the uh, uh, world's great imperial powers was France. Uh, they didn't want to be outdone by their uh, British rivals, uh, unlike their island nation counterparts, I will say. At least the French culture can boast of its cuisine, unlike <laughs> Unlike the UK, how they ever thought they could yep. rule the world with that stuff, I have no idea. But seriously, how did French imperialism in Africa and Asia play into the nostalgia for French identity and pride? How did that impact the people of their former colonies?
1: Yes, well, um, if Britain was the, uh, the number one uh, colonizer, then then France was the number two, certainly in the modern world. Uh and uh, at times, the uh, British and the uh, French were rivals, but they gradually uh, drew together uh, against other rivals, such as uh, Germany, for example. Uh, but uh, in the, the post-Second World War period, the, the French faced the, the same problem uh, that the British did. That is, they had been uh, brought, brought low by the Second World War. France had actually been conquered, of course, yeah. um, uh, by the the uh, Germans, uh, and um, were uh, driven out of their uh, former uh, imperial holdings. So many, many uh, colonized peoples used that opportunity in the aftermath of the war, even during the war, to uh, try to take uh, control of their own countries and to see to it that the French didn't uh, come back uh, to rule them once more. And of course uh the the uh french faced the uh, immediate problem in uh vietnam yes. at the end of the second world war um the the Minh, uh, uh, led by ho chi minh uh had uh, fought uh, first against the the uh, collaborationist uh, french rule the uh, vichy french the ones who were right. uh, who had aligned themselves with uh, germany uh with the german conquerors uh and then when the uh, Japanese moved in and, and simply uh, pushed the, the uh, collaborationist French to the side, they uh, fought against the the uh, Japanese. And at the end of the war, uh, as the Japanese were uh, defeated, the uh, Viet Minh uh, moved into um, uh, throughout Vietnam, oh, yeah. and they, they uh, declared their independence in um, uh, uh, from the the uh, French. And therefore, uh, the the uh, Viet Minh ruled um, uh, Vietnam, but of course the French weren't going to let that happen, mm. and so they move back in um, uh, first, uh, promising the Viet Minh various things, and then eventually uh, turning on, on them and uh, waging a war uh, for the the uh, recolonization of Vietnam. Um, and of of course, uh, eventually they they were uh, defeated there. Uh, one more uh, humiliation for the colonizers nineteen fifty four so they they signed an uh, agreement uh, with the the um, uh, the admin. Uh, but they they still had a, a foothold in other places such as Algeria. Oh, yeah. indeed, they claim that Algeria was part of metropolitan France, mm-hmm. Algeria. Was, was actually not just a, a, a colony, but Algeria was French. And the, and the great nationalist, the colonialist cry was Algérie Francaise. Uh, so um, uh, it, it wasn't just a, a, a colony. Algeria, like, like uh, Ukraine, was, uh-huh. was part of the great motherland, <laughs> uh, so on. So, uh, of course, they weren't planning to let Algeria go and they they fought a bitter anti and yeah. um, bitter counterinsurgency war there uh... in the uh, post-war years uh... including uh... torture and uh... mass killing and and so on in algeria <clears throat> the um, algerians though uh, fought on yes. and <clears throat> the the uh, french military which was um, uh, now headquartered to a large degree in Algeria to to uh, suppress the the insurgency, <clears throat> the uh, French military leaders feared that the French government b- back home um, was going to finally sign a, a treaty with the Algerians and give them their freedom. So the French military revolted, and they they landed paratroopers in Paris. <laughs> That is the military went back, and they staged a military coup in, in France, seizing power and deposing the uh, civilian government of the, the elected government of France. They, they deposed the uh, French Republic, and for a time the military was in, in charge. Oh and then they handed things over to, to a man. Uh, thanks to his Second World War glory, mm. uh, Charles de Gaulle, mm-hmm. that they thought would be a, a, a reliable uh, spokesman for uh, continued uh, French rule in Algeria. But over the years, as the Algerians uh, continued their war and France, um, um, uh, was simply not able to uh, suppress the revolt, um, de Gaulle began negotiations with the Algerians uh for a uh, peace treaty. Well this en- enraged of course the, the French military which again rose up <laughs> and uh, sought to uh, depose uh, uh de Gaulle. But uh de Gaulle was an old hand at uh, exercising power yes. and he also had some supporters inside the uh, French military so he he managed to outmaneuver the uh, French generals um, and to to uh, stay in power and to uh, suppress the revolt, although for years in, in France there were bombs being being set off right, right. by these irreconcilable uh, colonialists uh, who demanded that uh, uh, Algeria uh, remained uh, remain French, but ultimately they were uh, suppressed um, and I, I should add uh, uh, the chunk of the French population that looked back to uh, to Algerie Francaise and looked back to French to, to France's uh, colonial uh, glory uh, rallied around a, uh, a new uh, party, uh, the National Front, uh-huh. an extreme right-wing uh, a colonialist party uh, that was that was led um, uh, by the father of uh, Marine Le Pen the the French nationalist leader uh, today who has mm-hmm. renamed the the party uh, the National Rally and and of course nearly won the uh, French presidency uh, on the basis of this hyper nationalism and uh, support for for uh, France's former glory so uh, you know uh, imperial uh, nostalgia is not dead in in France that, even today
0: boy that is for sure forty two percent she got. Imperial nostalgia. Ah, the image of the glory days. People sing about that. And uh, back to uh, Vietnam, uh, Mm -hmm. after World War II, the Viet Minh believed what the United States had said in its foundation, that... Our mission is to help nations formerly imprisoned by imperialist forces and to support their liberation. Ho Chi Minh flew an American flag uh, early on. I think it was in 1945. Then came the Red Scare in the 50s in America. The imagined frame around the reality of Vietnam, what it was, was there was just part of what was called the Soviet bloc. Uh, it As with the independence movement in the former British and French colonies, as you write, fears arose among Americans that they were losing nations around the world to communists, revolutionaries, and nationalists. And I'm reminded, I don't know who said it, but uh, back in, in the 50s, during the McCarthy era, there was the uh, question that haunted the country, who lost China as if, yes. as if we owned china <laughs> how how deep how did this deep fear of losing the image which was stamped onto america by the mccarthy area, play into what president johnson said about why we uh, why we would not allow ourselves to be defeated by vietnam how was that how does nostalgia what's the role of nostalgia in that
1: Yes. Well, uh, the United States has an interesting history when it it, it comes to uh, colonialism. On the one hand, uh, of course, it it began as a a small sliver of of, uh, British colonies that uh, broke free from uh, colonial rule. So in that sense, it was an anti-colonial force. But the reality also was that it expanded from that small sliver of colonies. Uh, across the vast continent uh, uh, of North America and then into the uh, Caribbean and then uh, became a great power uh, around the world. So on the one hand, it could help the, the uh, Viet Minh in its uh, struggle against the, the uh, Japanese during the Second World War, and the, the uh, Viet Minh, in, indeed, when they uh, set up uh, Vietnam, um, use the the uh, US Declaration of Independence as a model and it begins all men are created equal and so on so it actually models itself on the United States or at least the United States as an anti-colonial power yes but as we've seen the reality was that although the United States didn't always call it uh, colonialism or sometimes yeah. it did for example during the uh, Philippine war yeah. the the fact was that the United States had been an expansionist power on the world scene, and it had interests and it had control in, in many places, as in China. And therefore, it, it wasn't so hard to say that the United States had lost China. And who had lost China? Well, obviously, uh, traitors at at home, yeah. because the United States should never have have lost it in, in, in the first place. Um, and, and similarly. With other uh, charges against the United States, now this was useful uh, politically uh, for the Republican Party
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, certainly they, they, they charged in fact that the Democratic Party was the party of uh, twenty years of treason, right mm. it, it sold out to the communist menace and so on, and that it started when the United States recognized the uh, Soviet Union back in uh, thirty three but it continued. As the Soviet Union uh, gobbled up Eastern Europe and China, uh, and supposedly the, the Soviets had, had gobbled up China. Not sure. uh, true. Uh, Chinese gobbled up China. But um, the 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 fact was that it, it was a, a very useful uh, political ploy to, to claim that the United States was losing uh, the world. But nonetheless, many other people, aside from the Republicans, had this dreamy vision. Uh, of the United States as the greatest nation in the history of the world, as they like to say. And, and, and therefore, if it was the greatest nation in the history of the world, it, it deserved to, to rule the world, mm-hmm.
2: right? Or,
1: or, or at least have something to, to, to say about every rebellion and every government around the world, rather than just to think, uh, you know, horror of, of horrors, that the United States was just one of many nations. And it should respect their national rights just as they should respect U.S. national rights. So, uh, of course, this, this imperialist nostalgia uh, was very great in, in the United States and went beyond just Republicans. So uh, it, it was easy for, for, for Johnson to, to say, how, how dare right. uh, this, this little you know, Vietnamese nation uh, stand up against a great, uh, against the great United States so on. who were they to tell the United States who should rule Vietnam right
0: mm. there's no racism involved here, of That's course, right. no, not at all you know and 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 that makes me think of <clears throat> another nostalgia that there is uh, in the United States in, in the 1860s. There was this uh, rebellion, this move for a secession to become an independent nation by the South. We know it as the Civil War. And the effects are still there. There's this emotional clinging to the lost cause, the idealized way of life that the South lost in the Civil War. And I, I wonder, you know, fast forward to current news, could nostalgia for an idealized white Protestant male rule be fueling terrible racist bloodshed across America? Is is nostalgia a part of that? I suspect that it is.
1: Oh, I'm sure it is. And, uh, you know, certainly this uh, replacement theory nonsense and, oh God. and so on. Yeah. Uh, those the, the uh, racist roots of this sort of thing but also keep it in, in mind uh, thanks to the uh US uh, global imperial role if i can use that 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 term yes uh, the uh americans have identified with that role and therefore uh, with the glorious wars that the US fought in the in in the past and the military and the armed forces and the use of the gun and the weapon are 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 linked to this past uh, glory yeah. that is uh, the military pro- probably has has the highest rating in the uh, prestige of, of of major institutions in, in the United States right i, oh, I think old tend to show that right uh, the military is one institution of the US government that uh, people really admire and, and and so on our our heroes right uh and uh, uh, similarly the um, the uh, the use of of guns in, in the United States and of gun culture is to some degree based on the the uh, glory of past wars right and, and and people identifying with the heroic role that u s troops have 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 played in in the past. So you combine that with uh, racism and you have a powerful incentive for young men to arm themselves right and mm-hmm. and stand up there and, and, and show that they're real men and being a, a mm-hmm. real man means you you uh, carry a gun and you you uh, don't let anyone stand in the way uh, of, of the uh, greatness of the U.S. past, and of course, the greatness uh, supposedly was 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 based on a, a, a white American, uh, often white uh, Protestant uh, American vision of the past.
0: Yeah, and uh, I have to think that some of the motivation for January sixth, twenty twenty one, was that similar nostalgia for the greatness of America, and nobody. Was going to get in their way. They felt like doing. They were doing a good thing, which of course brings up, as we mentioned a little while ago, about uh, the current manifestation of nostalgia is Donald Trump's "Make America Great Again." What a great phrase! And one thing I know from from politics, you got to keep it simple, and people can identify it. Part of the magic appeal of that phrase is that everyone can plug in their own version of what that means, make America great again. Oh, isn't that nice? The power of those simplistic words has been quite impressive and has led to terrible violence and hatred in our streets. But but as you point out, in reality, make America great again is nothing new. I thought I'd heard it before, but I wasn't sure. And thanks to your essay, we see this brazen policymaking by nostalgia did not originate with... The former guy, the orange one, do tell.
1: Well, um, you know, certainly that's that's been a theme uh, throughout U.S. history. That is the uh, reverence for the flag, the uh, pledge of allegiance, uh, a whole range of other things that that are uh, uh, misty-eyed uh, nationalist uh, uh, calls to uh, uh, to to identify with American greatness. Uh, and, uh, in fact, other, other politicians have, have played on that theme. Uh, and even the, the phrase, uh, make America great again, uh, was used in uh, speeches uh, uh, by Ronald Reagan, for see. example, uh, and also used in uh, speeches by Bill Clinton. So it's mm. not just a, a, a monopoly of uh, Republicans. <laughs> uh, although I think in, in, the, in the case of Donald Trump, he was uh, specifically latching on to it because at times uh, Barack Obama, who is, of course, a, 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 a symbol of, um, uh, of the decline of white uh, supremacy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why should a, a, a man like this be, be president of the United States, uh, a person of color? You know, right. That was already a, a, a decline. But occasionally, Obama. Would say things like, "Well, other you know, other countries have their their uh, traditions too, and we should respect them and respect the United Nations, and and so on." And that was uh, red meat for the mm. the uh, right wing in this country. They could come roaring back with uh, Donald Trump saying, uh, "America is not just another nation; it's the greatest nation in the history of, of the world, and we're going to see to it." that we're going to make America great again. Uh-huh. And those, you know, those Democrats are, are the, uh, the party once more of uh, treason to the United States and to it, its glory. They're ruining the United States, but we're going to bring us back to greatness again. So uh, I think okay. it's wrapped up in, in uh, several uh, traditional packages here.
0: Uh, The greatness, the glory days of the past. Uh, We're talking on Keeping Democracy Alive with uh, Professor Lawrence Whitner, who's written an article on the History News Network, which I highly recommend, titled The Dangerous Trend of Imperial Nostalgia. And it's not just Russia. We're talking about a bunch of nations. And currently, one of the new sort of big boys on the block is China. Greatness and humiliation are both part of their history. You know... China's leaders, especially Xi Jinping, have reached deeper into the past to locate its era of imperial glory. So tell us, please, about Xi's use of imperial nostalgia and how it seems to be playing into the current wolf-warrior diplomacy. I, what does that mean? What is what is he up to?
1: Okay, well, um, of course, uh, China was a great imperial empire centuries back. Um, and uh, ruled a good chunk of uh, Southeast Asia. Um, but, uh, of course, in more uh, recent centuries, uh, particularly during the 19th and uh, 20th century, uh, European uh, colonial powers were on the move, and they um, began to to uh, carve up China uh, to resist its, uh, its barriers to, to things like Like opium, for example, China tried to restrict the opium trade to the the, uh, Chinese government tried to restrict the opium trade uh, coming to China uh, from Great Britain. But, of course, Britain felt it had a uh, perfect right uh, to rule the waves and to bring opium in. It it was profitable. So uh, it did so. Uh, And uh, uh, it defeated China in the uh, so-called opium war. And uh, from that point on, uh, China's defenses were down and various uh, uh, Western uh, treaty ports were set up w- within China w- w- with um, uh, China having no control of what was done there. These became sort of uh, foreign entrepôts, where the Chinese government had no uh, ability to uh, control what went on. And uh, missionary activities took place and uh, various territories were were uh, taken out of uh, China's hands by the the uh, British, by the French, by the by the Germans, um, uh, uh, by the United States, and and most uh, recently uh, by the Japanese, who moved in during the 1930s and began to to uh, take over large portions of, of China. Their rallying cry was uh, Asia for the Asiatics, but of course this this really meant for the Japanese. So they were driving out the British and the French, and so on, but they were taking over uh, China for themselves and, and the Chinese recognized this so the the uh, Chinese were uh, uh, very uh, humiliated by this this uh, colonialism at their expense so after the the um, uh, second world war and after the uh, success of the communist revolution in 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 china um, uh, Mao Zedong, the new uh, communist regime on the, on the mainland, uh, sought to, to build up China as a great power. And he wasn't very good at it, as it turned out, uh, but economically at least. But uh, uh, nonetheless, his, his more recent uh, successors have been. And so uh, China has emerged as a major economic power. And as it has done that, it has also built up its military forces. Yes. So uh, today, China... In, is not only the uh, uh, second uh, largest economic power in in the world, second to the United States, mm-hmm. but the second largest military power to the United States in terms of uh, military spending. So uh, China is in in, in many ways a, a, a rival to the United States sure. and to other uh, former imperial powers, looking back on their their past glory, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, Xi has has characterized this. As uh, the, the uh, restoration of uh, China's greatness, and uh, rather than uh, um, settle as Japan has, has settled since the Second World War for uh, the restoration of its economic power, uh, but not its its vast military power um, or, or or its imperial role in the war uh, in, in in the world, she um, uh, has has begun to. Um, uh, use the military to extend uh, China's uh, uh, control of various uh, places so that, for example, there are islands in the South China Sea that it has uh, seized, that it has set up uh, military uh, fortifications on. Other nations claim these islands. Vietnam claims some, some of them. The Philippines claims some of them. Other nations claim some of them. Uh, but nonetheless, here here are Chinese uh, fortifications and and uh, military and air uh, vessels there. Mm. So, uh, and there there are uh, conflicts over uh, Taiwan. Yes, um, uh, China had had uh, stated that it would uh, respect um, uh, Taiwan's uh, not independence, since it claimed uh, uh, Taiwan was a traditional part right. of China. But it, it said, "Well, we're not going to invade, and uh, uh, you know, gradually the, the people on on Taiwan will see that their best opportunity for the future is to uh, reunify them, themselves with China." Well, of course, that hasn't happened. No. And, uh, so she uh, is is now uh, uh, talking about uh, um, the. Well, he he's making a claim that, that Taiwan should not go too far. Or, or, or China, you know, might have to move in. And now there are, there are Chinese um, uh, military flights over uh, Taiwan. Uh, and so you can correct, ask,
0: I just wanted to, uh, sorry to interrupt, but the people of Hong Kong, you know, China is going course, for it, yeah. its glory days once again. and right. It, it, it amazes me. And There's not a lot of time left here for us to talk about, but uh, there are, it's not just the big nations that do it. As you point out, uh, Turkey, India, Hungary, Austria, and other nations, I mean, the Ottoman Empire, it's been gone for a long time, but they're still playing a role in the 2020s.
1: Right, right. Well, uh, I I guess. All these nations have this uh, revival, yep. usually on the uh, political right wing, mm. of uh, nostalgia for their their uh, glorious past. Yep. Uh, Israel is a, a particularly yes. uh, uh, glaring example of this, though, in that its 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 claim in the region, in the Middle East, it is based on on uh, uh, the Bible and and yeah, uh, very years ancient ago. Uh, rule there, right? Yeah. But. Of course, the the uh, Jewish population uh, in the uh, in the last century uh, was not very very uh, great there till the the, um, um, the you know uh, large numbers of uh, right. Jews migrated from from uh, Europe and from the other other portions of the Middle East, so that the the uh, current uh, Israeli government uh, maintains this 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 right to the West Bank based on on uh, the glorious past
0: and uh, and so on. The glorious past. Well, before we go too far, uh, solutions. You write, as we cope with a planet riven by international conflict and war, let us consider how dreams of imperial grandeur might be discarded and how a strength in United Nations might be used to fashion a more secure and cooperative world. I mean, even our current president uh, talks about America as the world's indispensable nation. The revitalized militaristic nationalist right has long opposed any international war-preventive body like the League of Nations or the United Nations. But they are not the only voice, the military. Might now be a unique moment for reflection and reconsideration of our dreams of imperial grandeur. Any signs of hope for this?
1: Well, I think there are. Um, you know, the United Nations developed uh, out of the Second World War this horrible, uh, worst international uh, catastrophe uh, in the world up to that time and and uh, since then, too. Um, so an international uh, security system was set up uh, under the uh, United Nations, uh, to be maintained by the U.N. Uh, Security Council. Um, but the the imperial powers, the great powers that uh, had, had, had yeah. come out of the Second World War, uh, didn't want the United Nations to interfere with their policies. Mm-hmm. That is, the Russians didn't mind uh, the U.N. interfering with uh, U- uh, U.S. policies, mm-hmm. uh, but they didn't want interfering with their policies. So they would veto things mm-hmm. in the Security Council and vice versa the US would veto things when uh, things would would uh, go against the United States and, and so on so the uh, Security Council became something of a joke that is it, it yeah. could, you know uh, uh, great powers could could speak there but the implementation of this international uh, security system uh, uh, was blocked um, so uh, to go back to the present the the Ukraine war is just one more sign that the world desperately needs an effective international uh, security system, yes. as has been talked of, but has not been implemented. Um, and so um, that that fact, uh, plus the uh, climate uh, crisis yes. and the uh, disease uh, crisis around the world, uh, uh, plus other things going on, offer us the opportunity to do some new thinking uh, about how to cast aside nationalism and dreams of imperial grandeur and to actually uh, go beyond that old stuff and to strengthen the united nations a- as the real voice for the people of the world and as an effective player in uh, realizing the 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 interests and the goals of the people of the world so i think the united nations if uh, strengthened if the veto is weakened or Uh, abolished Uh, if the UN gets taxing power for example uh, to raise funding uh, for world health and for eradication of of poverty for example and a whole range of other things the UN uh, could be doing and I think uh, should be doing and indeed were being talked of at the time it was set up then I think um, we're talking about a new and better world
0: And we can't give up. I mean, we can give up, but we should not give up. We are not powerless. The powers that be want us to believe we are powerless, but we are not. Very interesting discussion and uh, some degree of hope there. Uh, Our guest has been Lawrence Whitner, professor of history emeritus at SUNY Albany, and he's written about uh, the dangerous trend of imperial nostalgia. And uh, let's try to get in the moment rather than be led by nostalgia. You think? Maybe? Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Bert.